So I just have a, a quick comment before we jump in this morning, and, and that's this. Andrew and I were talking uh, recently about kind of where we both are in our, our various series, he and Second Timothy and me and Colossians, and we began to notice that we have several themes that are often overlapping between where we are in our texts. I will tell you that we've not collaborated on this uh, to make it happen, but I think God is working to have our two book studies running concurrently. And I think it speaks to the power of God to work among His people and also to show the consistency of the whole of Scripture. And so if you're hearing similar themes from both of us, that is why. We didn't plan it, but we are uh, traveling some parallel paths. So I want to begin this morning with a quick review, because it's been a few weeks since we've been in Colossians. And so I want to remind us what Paul is talking about here in chapter 2. And he began in verse 1 to talk about the struggle that he has for the church and for believers to receive the full riches of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And we saw that in verse 2. In verse 4, he began to instruct the Colossian believers to be aware of plausible arguments. And we defined the word plausible as persuasive language or enticing words. And they oftentimes will show up or come through subtle questions that are are asked that are intended to raise doubts about the truth. Sometimes they are good statements, they seem to be good statements, but they're really quite deceptive. And other times they use forceful language and they're trying to threaten us or threaten people to scare you into believing a lie or rejecting the truth outright. And an example of that would be what we're experiencing in our nation right now in this gender debate that we see going on. We also took a time to look at an example out of Genesis, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And that is the, the account of when Eve is interacting with the serpent. And of course, as you know, she ate of the fruit and uh, we are all experiencing the consequences of that. But we pointed out the fact that the devil asked a very subtle question. He said, what or did God really say? So the point of that is to show that plausible arguments have been around for a very long time. And if we give in to them, they can carry with it very serious and oftentimes, or not oftentimes, sometimes deadly consequences. And then the Apostle moved on to encourage the Colossian believers a little bit uh, when he highlighted their good order and firmness of their faith, which we saw in verse 5. And he exhorted them to continue to walk in Christ. And and then we walked through four Greek participles that Paul used in verse 7 to show them their position in Christ, that they were rooted, built up, established, and abounding in thanksgiving. Well, now Paul is going to circle back, if you will, to the theme of plausible arguments, but this time he's going to unpack this issue uh, in greater detail. And it's here in the book where we see a shift into much deeper doctrinal truths that will continue now through the remainder of chapter 2. So with all that said, if you draw your attention to verse 8, we'll look at our first point this morning, which is see to it. So it's verse 8. 
See to it that no one takes you captive. So Paul begins here with a command to see to it. Believers are to make sure that we're not being carried away as captive or prisoners. So the imagery that Paul is using here is of a victorious general who is entering into his home city with those he has defeated and he's parading them through the streets. And so what the apostle is concerned about is the Colossian believers avoiding being, becoming captive or enslaved again in a sort of spiritual POW camp. Maybe to put it another way, to be reminded that believers have been rescued from Satan's domain and we have been brought into Christ's kingdom. And so Paul doesn't want to see them captured once again. And he wrote very similar, had a very similar concern when he wrote, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. We see that in Galatians 5, Galatians, Galatians 5, 1. Then in Galatians 1, 6, Paul was taken aback with the Christians there. If you remember what he said, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ in our turning to a different gospel. So again, Paul is not wanting the Colossian believers to fall victim to false teachers who are distorting the gospel of Jesus Christ and thus drawing them away from the truth of the scriptures. So as believers, we must be constantly watching and being aware of the danger of false teaching because it's always near. And of course, in the 21st century, because we all have cell phones, it can literally be at your fingertips. And so the command again is to see to it, meaning that we have a responsibility to participate in identifying and avoiding false teaching so not to get entangled in it. Consider some other warnings from the New Testament that we, can, that we see. Matthew 7.15 warns us to beware of false prophets who come to you in sleep, sheep's clothing and inwardly are ravenous wolves. In Acts 20, 29-31a, Paul is speaking to the elders in Ephesus. And he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Philippians 3.2 tells us, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And 2 Peter 3.17 says, You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Now there are some ways that we can, as believers, identify and protect against false teaching that is always attempting to leading us astray. First thing is very obvious. We need to be in the scriptures each and every day. The scriptures is where we're going to be able to understand truth and to recognize when false teaching and those type of things are present. Maybe even have the opportunity to confront it, depending if it's appropriate or not. And then the second thing is we need to be praying. We need to ask God to make us sensitive 
to the subtle lies of the enemy so we don't once again fall victim to his deceitfulness. And then another way we can do this is by interacting with one another as believers on a regular basis. That mutual encouragement for, to each other to stand firm in the faith. Proverbs 27.17 tells us that iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. So after Paul exhorts us to see to it, he then goes on to tell us what we are to see to. And so notice what the next phrase is in verse 8, where we read, See to it that no one takes you captive. And this phrase, takes you captive, is a compound Greek word, salagaheo, made up of salaheo, meaning to rob, and ageo, to carry off as booty. So it literally means to kidnap or to carry off as a spoil of war. Now we have seen over the years how many cults take people captive with their plausible arguments or as stated in this verse uh, as deceptive philosophy. And these cults, they assert a death-like grip on their followers. And sadly, once a person has been taken captive by that cult, it's hard to get away from it. For example, David Koresh or Jim Jones on the extreme end. But don't forget about Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness. They mask themselves as a religion, but yet their teaching is subtle and dangerous as a cult. And this is Paul's concern. In his mind, it is unthinkable that we should be vulnerable through our ignorance and then once again become POWs in a spiritual war. So he doesn't want to see believers taken captive again by a spiritual predator with false doctrine. So if you ever wonder why Pastor Pat, Andrew, and I preach the way we do, it's because we as elders understand that we need to guard the flock against ravenous wolves and perverse teachers that seek to derail uh, and destroy your faith. Well, the next thing that the Colossian believers are told um, and warned about is philosophy. Notice our second point, which is Paul's three-pronged warning about philosophy, also taken from verse 8. So see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So one thing I want to make clear is the Apostle Paul is not arguing that philosophy is bad. If you read Paul's letters, you know that he's quite the philosopher in and of himself. But philosophy simply means the love of wisdom. And so the word that's translated here in Colossians as philosophy, it actually only appears here in the New Testament. But Paul is using this term in a broader sense than in the, the academic disciplines we often think of. Historian Adolf Schattler noted, Theories about God, the world, and the meaning of human life are called philosophy and were found in both the pagan and Jewish schools of the day. And so this word Paul used was broad enough also, broad enough also to cover religious sects. For example, as the Jewish historian Josephus wrote, there are three philosophical sects among the Jews. The followers of the first, of whom are the Pharisees, of the second, the Sadducees, 
And the third sect, who pretends to be a surveyor or more strict or harsh discipline, are called Essenes. So Paul is not against philosophy, but he is against dangerous philosophies. And those dangerous philosophies of his day were combining the Hebrew rites and ascetic regulations with pagan philosophy. For example, the Colossian errorists, those who hold to and propagate error, were attempting to lead the Christians astray by stating they, meaning the errorists, had a transcendent and higher knowledge that they supposedly received through some mystical experience. Well, R. Kent Hughes describes that in this way. Quote, it was all very mysterious, complicated, astrological, and snooty. But worst of all, it was very deadly because it mixed some of the truth of Hebrew religion with the delectably enticing mysteries of Eastern mysticism and Greek philosophy. Unquote. So in our text passage this morning, Paul is calling the Colossian believers to resist this dangerous philosophy, and so he provides three characteristics of it. The first one is empty deceit meaning something that sounds great but is quite deceptive. The second is human tradition, those added rituals and rules like what the Pharisees did to the law. And then elemental spirits or the basic principles of this world. So we're going to walk through these three characteristics one at a time. And so let's once again look at verse 8 as we begin. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And so that first characteristic that Paul is highlighting is empty deceit. And again, that's something that sounds great, but is deceptive. We can see this quite clearly in politics, academia, religion, and science. But if we're not being trained by the scriptures to know the truths that are contained in them, we could fall very easily prey to some of these fine-sounding arguments. Consider this statement from a car ad I heard recently. This, this manufacturer is talking about before they put a car in service, this is, this is what they have to meet. It says, their ad says, it meets the, um, it won't, let me back up. Try this again. According to their ad, not one of their vehicles is placed on the street unless, quote, it meets the ultimate standard. Our standard. Our standard. Hmm. I know it's just a car ad, but let me point out that comparing yourself to yourself is not an accurate comparison. Why? Because it doesn't expose error or deficiencies. So, don't get me wrong, it's great to have lofty expectations and personal standards. Nobody, nobody would fault you for that. But Francis Schaeffer, Schaeffer emphasized, quote, Man cannot begin with himself and arrive at ultimate reality, unquote. There has to be an external ultimate standard. Well, that external ultimate standard is Jesus Christ himself. Now, I get it. It's a car company. They're trying to sell cars and they have a really catchy slogan to do it with. But sadly, though, we see these same techniques entering into the church. So there's an insert that I put into your bulletin. And if you want to just take that out 
and, and open it up so you'll see two quotes one on the left and one on the right and we're going to start with the one on the left and that quote comes from a very prominent megachurch pastor and we're going to compare his quote to what Paul had to say to the Corinthians so follow along as I read the quote on the left stop looking at your weakness and start declaring the power of I am Say, I am strong, I am healthy, I am blessed, I am beautiful, I am prosperous. Now to me, that sounds like something a motivational speaker would say. And this particular pastor has slapped a Christian label on it. But there's a question we have to ask, because it sounds pretty good. But the question we have to ask, is it true? 1 John 4.1 tells us, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So let's put this quote to the test. Let's compare it to what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12.9 and see if what the megachurch pastor said measures up against the ultimate standard of God's word. So if you look at the quote on the right, Paul said, But he, meaning Christ, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So the megachurch pastor says we should declare the power of I am. And when he says, I am, he's arguing that we should declare how strong, beautiful, healthy, blessed, and rich we are. While the Apostle Paul is saying that he gladly boasts in his weaknesses. Why? Because that is where the power of God is made evident in his life. And the same is true for us. So again, I remind you of what Francis Schaeffer wrote. Man cannot begin with himself and arrive at ultimate reality. Humanistic philosophy always begins and ends with man. In mathematics, we call this a circular reference and it's impossible to compute. It comes back to the argument that we've heard over the years. It's my truth and you can't tell me I'm wrong. So it's always focused on I, 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 and me, me, me. Well, the next characteristic Paul highlights is human tradition. Those added rituals and rules like what we described the, the Pharisees did to the law. And it's just like it sounds. Have you ever heard the statement, we've always done it that way? Well, traditions are double-edged swords. They, they, some are good. Some are not so much. Just because people have done something the same way for a long time, it doesn't make, make it true or even right. One commentator stated that traditions often serve to perpetuate error. And I think he's probably right. Well, first century Judaism, for example, highlights what human tradition looks like. The Jewish leaders and teachers had added so many customs and rituals to God's word, it was nearly impossible to distinguish it from the traditions of men. Will Graham, the the grandson of Billy Graham, he illustrated that point this way. He said, God is in the center. But he's been surrounded by layers of fences 
uh, in circles around him. The Pharisees had added so many barriers, rituals, and practices that had to be crossed in order to get to God that you actually didn't get to God if you didn't do those rituals. So you kind of get the image there of, of what we're talking about. But consider also this interaction that Jesus had with the scribes and Pharisees in Mark chapter 7. Jesus was asked the question why his disciples did not walk according to the tradition of the elders. Well, Jesus' response to that question was, You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. So we as humans tend to want to put rules and things in place ahead of God's word. And oftentimes I think it's because since God's standard cannot be met on our own, we, we do this to make us feel better or like we're, we're doing better or that we're better than somebody else. However, praise the Lord. For the believer, Christ has met all the standards and requirements on our behalf. He has imputed to us his righteousness. To say it another way, Christ has taken away our sin. He bore it to the cross. And he gave us his perfect righteousness in its place. So we don't need human traditions to go along with our faith. That is really nothing more than depending upon works. We don't need works. We need Christ. The third source of false philosophy is elemental spirits, or the basic principles of this world. So the Greek word that is translated as elemental spirits literally means things in a row, like the alphabet. So Paul might just be describing how their false teaching and beliefs are so rudimentary and so simplistic for those who are spiritually mature. But the idea of abandoning biblical truth for empty philosophy would, would be equivalent to uh, a person returning to kindergarten to learn their ABCs after receiving a doctorate degree. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians uh, 1, 18-21, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. In Galatians 4.3, we read, In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So basically, human religion is not very advanced. It's really quite rudimentary. It doesn't communicate profound truths. What it does do, though, is fatally achieve salvation by works. We see this in the secular world, but we are beginning to see this in the church as well, where some pastors are teaching their followers to believe things like the power of I am. In other words, it's the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. In our text passage, verse 8 concludes with the statement, 
not according to Christ. And that is what we have taken a lot of time to describe. That we're pursuing, when we're pursuing human philosophy or religion, we're not pursuing Christ. We have to be people of the book, as you may have heard it said. In other words, we need to be in God's Word, and God's Word needs to be in us. So now we come to what is one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. Turn your attention to verses 9 and 10. And our third and final point this morning is the fullness of Christ's deity and what it means for the believer. Verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So this might just be the most definitive statement on Christ's deity found in Scripture. But it should sound a little bit familiar to us because if you look back in chapter 1, verse 19, we read there, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. But there is a difference between these two statements. In chapter 1, verse 19, the idea is that God's divine qualities are revealed in Christ. But here in chapter 2, verse 9, Paul is insisting that Christ, that in Christ dwells the very essence of God. And this word dwells mean to, means to settle down and be at home. It's in the present tense. And it means that the essence of deity continually abides at home in Christ. The indwelling fullness of God is in Christ incarnate. In other words, Christ is God in the flesh. Therefore, as we see in, at the end of verse 10, Christ is the head of all rule and authority. And this is important for us to know because Paul is saying that Christ is God himself. He's not some lesser being that, that he, Christ, is the head of all the angelic realm and all of creation. The Colossian believers needed to be reminded of this. That way they could stand firm in resisting the false and dangerous teaching that Christ was some lesser God that you would believe in on the road to the highest God. So once again, we're being reminded by Paul the primary and major theme of this letter. And that is the preeminence and superiority of Christ over all things. Now look with me at verse 10 where we see one final and amazing thing that Paul is teaching us. Look with me again. It says, And you have been filled in him. This is a remarkable statement. In fact, it should take our breath away. Why? Because Paul has just affirmed that believers share in Christ's fullness by virtue of being in Christ and Christ being in us. Let me illustrate it this way. Uh, R. Kent Henry related this uh, story. that He and his wife once stood on the shore of the vast Pacific Ocean. Two, or two finite dots alongside what is seemingly an infinite expanse. Well, as they stood there, they began to reflect on it. And they thought, boy, if we were to take a pint jar and allow the ocean to rush into it, it would fill instantly with the Pacific Ocean. And whose thought was, boy, I could never put the fullness of the Pacific Ocean in my jar. But thinking of Christ, we realize that because He is infinite, 
He can hold all the fullness of deity. And whenever one of us finite creatures dip our tiny little vessel of our life into him, we instantly become filled with his fullness. What an amazing image and reality for us as believers. But keeping with that illustration, the capacity of the believer's container is also important. So our souls, which is the container, they're elastic. And they can stretch and grow and hold more and more of Christ's fullness in our vessel. We only need to keep immersing ourselves into Christ's infinite fullness to stretch that capacity so we can hold more and more of Him. R. Kent Hughes continued to say, We must also understand that His fullness meets our individual needs. He gives us what the moment requires. Wisdom, strength, and courage. We must, must remember too that as we continue in Him, we experience the satisfaction of His fullness. A continual stream of filling and overflowing in our lives. So let me ask another question. In light of what Paul has just said, why do we pursue other things to fill us up when all we need is Jesus Christ? We all have these things that we like to engage in and bring us enjoyment, and there's nothing wrong with engaging in them, unless, of course, they're sinful in and of themselves. However, they may become sin for us if we begin to put them in place of Christ in our lives. So if an, an activity that I love to do is taking the place of Bible study, prayer, and ministry to the body, then that activity is sinful for me. It must be put to death. If you remember when Andrew spoke in September's communion service, he purposely focused our attention on what the Lord's table teaches us. One of the final thoughts that he had before we participated together in communion was to examine ourselves. And he provided four questions to facilitate this examination. It's an examination that we ought to be doing regularly. One of the questions he asked was, where are there unconfessed sins in my life that must be confessed? It's a good question to ask. Another question is, is my soul spiritually filled and nourished by the Word of God? How about I have examined my life have I examined my life through the lens of scripture? So if we're asking ourselves these questions regularly and we're being honest with ourselves in the answers, then we can have that continual inflowing of Christ's fullness into our lives. Because if we're being continually filled with Christ's fullness, there'll be no room for anything else. So do you see the cyclical process that's happening here? When we empty ourselves through confession and repentance, then we are allowing ourselves to be filled with more of Christ. And this is something that will forever be something we do this side of eternity. You may not think that you're going to be growing spiritually, but others will notice, and eventually you will too. So this is why Paul began verse 8 with saying, See to it. We have a responsibility to order our lives as Christ and His Word outlines. Yes, Christ is the one who will complete the work that He has begun in each of us, but it doesn't preclude us 
from actively participating in Christ's work in our lives. So as we conclude this morning, I want to encourage you with this thought. Christ has done everything He can do for you when He died on the cross and rose again on the third day. He won. No matter how much Satan carries on with his evil plans for this world, Christ won. Listen to this quote from C.S. Lewis. It's a familiar one, probably to most of you, if not all. Quote, We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who, goes, who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And that last phrase is what I want to close with this morning. We are far too easily pleased. See, our tendency is to act like electricity and take the path of least resistance versus doing the hard work of testing and verifying whether what is being communicated is biblically true and accurate. And if we're not in the Word regularly, regularly how can we expect to recognize error when it's presented? The enemy is defeated, but he's not stupid. He packages the ugly mud pies of this age of his age-old lies into new, shiny, and very subtle packages. So we need to be filled each and every day with Christ's fullness so there's not any room for anything else. And it's going to require our effort, and hence the reason for the command, see to it. So are you willing to put in the time and the effort to do as 2 Timothy 2.15 says? And does it sound familiar? Andrew spoke on this verse last week. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And then Paul closed his first letter to Timothy with this counsel. He said, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. So can I make a suggestion for each of us this morning? Exchange the name Timothy with your name. And then make that our lifelong pursuit. Let's determine to pursue Christ and His truth, and when we do, we won't be easily pleased with plausible arguments and deceptive philosophy. As we search out the truth, we're going to discover that there are greater benefits that await us as we discipline ourselves to see to it. So this week, let's see to it that we keep our eyes on Christ and the truth of His Word, and then... Watch and see what happens. Let's pray.